ask this question, how can we live under the reign of God? And, and I think it's an appropriate question, especially with this passage, that we can ask this question, how can we live under the reign of God no matter who is king or emperor or president, etc., etc.? How can we live under the reign of God? And because here, what we are seeing over the last few chapters... We are seeing David make um, every effort to honor God in how he is living here under the reign of Saul. And in response to these things, we are seeing God protect David, but we are also seeing a very confusing picture of Saul. He's paranoid. He brings thousands of men to come and go after David. He sees that David spares his life and then completely, and then he completely changes um, in the way that he pursues David. And in fact, he looks to praise David, to ask David for forgiveness. And then before we know it, this whole thing is starting up again. And we don't even find, there's nothing that's even happened between Saul and David between chapter 24 and 26. But here's Saul again. He has come to this place of wanting to take David's life. And the, the way that we're supposed to read this is David goes down into the camp. What that's telling us is that David cannot believe that Saul would at this point bring an army again to come after him after Saul had made it very clear that he wanted to reconcile with David, that he called David his son, and that he even declared that David would be king over Israel in the future. And so David goes down into the camp because he can't believe it unless he sees it, that Saul is in fact after him again. And then David spares his life once more. And then we see Saul again in this complete shift. And so what we are supposed to see here is not real repentance by Saul. What we are supposed to see is that there are some major problems with this man. And he goes from rage to, um, to having compassion or rage to being thankful just in a moment. And there's not real repentance here. This is a man who has got serious problems, and David understands this. And yet he knows that he is called to spare him. And so the first thing I want to look at, how can we live under the reign of God? And we could come up with a list of hundreds of things, and I'm aware of that. But through this passage, we're going to see three things. The first one being looking at a patience for justice. And we see this in verses 7 through 12 because, we, again, we find David in this familiar place. He's in a position to do away with Saul. And he's in a position to once and for all stop being on the run and once and for all do away with an evil king and then take his right place on the throne the throne in which God has called him to. But even though David's nephew, this man, Abishai, who is with him, even though he was intent on killing Saul and saw it as the righteous thing to do, the correct, the, the sensible thing to do even, David knew that he was being called to greater patience. And he knew that he had to be patient for God's justice to come about. Now over this last week, We've, this has already come up at other points during our day today, but over this last week, if you've given any time at all to the news, then you have been exposed to the idea of justice in the events that have gone on in 
Ferguson, Missouri, this place right in the St. Louis area. And here's what's right in front of our face. Each time when this comes up, we see demonstrations or we see uh, people expressing their opinions and we see their inability to apply patience to justice. On all sides, people want an immediate verdict. They want, to, they want to declare or know or see something right now about who is right and who is wrong and then what those people deserve. And I'm certainly not in any position, nor is anyone at this point, in any position to make a judgment on this case. But the reason that there is so much vitriol going all over the place is because there is a, a desire for immediate justice. There's no patience for justice. We're easy, we easily become impatient when justice is involved. And when I'm directly involved, I want to speed up the process. Meaning I, I would like to even get involved in bringing about swift justice, not having it delayed. Consider this. What about people who get away with crimes altogether? Consider some well-known cases in your lifetime. Or someone that you were sure was guilty was declared or ruled not guilty. Or times when you know someone is not who the world thinks they are, but they continue living deceptively right in front of you, impressing all of those around you and them. These things don't sit well with us because we often forget about the true perfect justice, the justice of God that is never failing, the justice of God that is perfectly righteous, the justice of God that is patience, the justice that sits in His hand, that's under His perfect command. Now maybe, when, maybe we struggle to believe that one day everything will be made perfectly right. Maybe we truly struggle to believe that one day we will never be exposed to injustice again. But there's something under the surface in this passage today that the author is wanting us to get to. And it's that David knows that God has placed Saul in his hand for a second time, okay? And that's even, that's even said in verse 23. David understands that having the ability... To have the king of Israel vulnerable like this for a second time, the ability to grab his spear that is stuck in the ground right next to him and for no guards to wake up, for Saul to not have any knowledge that he's there. David understands that the Lord has placed Saul in his hands for a second time, but there's something deeper to this situation because the greater truth that's being shared in this story is that David knows that the only righteous justice is the justice that will come from the Lord's hand. And it will come in His time. And that's the truth that we're supposed to get from this, that that's the only righteous justice that exists. That it will come in God's time. And there very well may be things that we're experiencing right now that may not be made right until the day of the Lord. And so do you believe in the righteousness of God and do you believe that His patience has merit? 
Do you truly believe that there is something to His patience? Are you able to rest in the fact that justice isn't immediately carried out when, it's need, when we think it's needed, when we desire it? But to have peace, we must look for the Spirit to give us that belief, to have this patience. So how do we live under God's reign no matter what? This is a huge part of that. To have a patience for justice. To believe that everything will one day be made right. That one day we will dwell in a land where only righteousness exists. Unrighteousness will be unfamiliar. We, we won't know what that is. We may only have slight fading memories of it, of our time here. Are we able to rest in that belief. That is a huge part of living under God's reign no matter what's going on, no matter who is our authority. Secondly, in living under God's reign, there is an offering of sin that we see here. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. This is when Saul recognizes David's voice. And this is what he says. He says, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And then David wants to know why. So he's saying, why? Why do you pursue after your servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. So David is declaring his innocence before Saul. What evil is on my hands? So he's declaring this innocence. Or is he fully declaring, or is this really what's happening? Because he continues by saying, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me. So here's what David is saying. He's saying, King Saul, I can't think of anything that I have done to you. I have done nothing but serve you, support you, sacrifice my life for you, and I have spared your life time and again. He's saying, I have not sinned against you. You will find no evil on my hands that has gone against you. But then he says, however, maybe the Lord has stirred you up against me. The reason he says this is because he is saying, Against him, I am a sinner. So David is saying, No evil on my hands against you. But God, the Lord, he would have every right to cause you to pursue me. Can you see that David is clearly recognizing his innocence towards Saul, but his guilt towards the Lord? He's fully innocent towards Saul but completely guilty before the Lord. Elena, my wife, she is a real math whiz. And I mean, I mean crazy kind of problems that she's able to do and think through and work through. There have been times that she's been working on some type of equation and I'll see, she's just writing like crazy and I'll just look over and I'll just have to look away. <laughs> I, it might it might as well 
I might as well be looking over at something in Mandarin. It, there is, I have no clue what's going on. Now, here's what I know. I may read and write and try to learn and put together a lot of stuff every week, but I will never be a math person, ever. And I can, I can even hear sweet Miss Betty saying, Oh, Jake, if you really tried, you could really do it. <laughs> but Miss Betty, you're wrong. You are wrong. It's not, it's not happening. And I may expand my brain numerous times throughout the week, but if I look at something Elena is doing in math, I will be as clueless as ever. Okay? I, I, that is who I am. That is where I stand with math, with math. Now, here's what David's saying. He's not talking about math, I understand. But here's what he's saying. I may be doing all kind of things innocently before Saul. But no matter what, I'm guilty before the Lord. And if he has stirred up this anger in you towards me, then that is legitimate coming from God. Because I am a sinner. No matter what else I have done that may be right or may be good in your eyes or my eyes, I am guilty before God. That's all there is to it. Because he knows he has not sinned against Saul. There's no reason for Saul's wrath to be against David. But the Lord, on the other hand, that is a completely different matter. And the Lord would have every right to direct his wrath at David. So, we may have a lot of innocent areas in our life. There may be a lot of things that we do right. We may share in a lot of goodness. We may share in a lot of wisdom. We may share in a lot of compassion. And we may, in fact, have really grown in grace over the last number of years or weeks or days. We may have matured in our life with Christ. We may be able to point to things in our life where we know the Lord has worked in and through us. But here's the thing we need to see is that we are always a sinner before the Lord because we always need to be reminded of the need for an offering. The need for an offering. And this is what he does with confidence. Because he's saying, if this is the anger of the Lord, may he accept an offering. May God accept an offering. And so David was confident here that he's a sinner before God. There's no doubts. But he's confident that God is a redeemer God that longs to cover our sins and to atone for our sins. And we now, we now today, as David looked to this as something that only an offering that he could give at this time could only point to, we today have this in its fulfillment because the perfect offering has come in Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we live under God's reign, We must acknowledge our sinfulness. And we must acknowledge that all of our goodness and our kindness and the things that we've done well do not remove the stain of sin on our heart. Therefore, acknowledge your sinfulness. And then acknowledge the offering. Acknowledge the offering that is there. Thirdly, as we live under God's reign... We have the freedom, 
maybe it's a better way to put this, we have an opportunity for a plea for grace. Now we're about to look at an interesting part of this story because David's plea to Saul is that he will allow him to return home. And he wants to be able to turn, return home without being threatened. And so David is seeing that his, him being on the run and him being banished from his home, there is a sense in which David is being banished from God's presence and his heritage. And we see this in verses 19 and 20 where David says this to Saul. He says, uh, this is halfway through verse 19. For they, meaning the men, if the men have caused this with Saul, they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord. Saying, go serve other gods. So you're not to share in the heritage of the God of Israel. Go and share and serve in other gods. Serve other gods. And then he says in verse 20, Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of of the Lord. David is not just simply interested in being safe. He's not just simply interested in ending his persecution. David is longing for the ordinary means of God's grace in his life. This is what David is saying. Now here's what we know. God was with David in the wilderness. We have seen that time and time again that it says the Lord was with David. We also see something was not there. Something integral to his faith was badly missing. And it's not that God's presence couldn't be in one place and and not another. David knew that wasn't the case, but he desperately wanted to participate in the regular worship of God and to know his beauty dwelling in his presence. David longed for the God-ordained means of worship and fellowship with God's people. This is what he was wanting. This is what it means for him to long for the heritage of God. Now some may be sure that all that we do on Sundays is such a waste or, or, or unnecessary or odd that the songs and prayers and preaching and giving of tithes and offerings and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that that just fills up an hour. And what's it for? And it's, it doesn't make sense. Or there's nothing special about it. Or that we could do that on our back porch. So there'll be some challenge to this. But is Sunday worship, is it a take it or leave it kind of day for you? When you're on vacation, are you on vacation from this too? When you're out of town, do you find a place to participate in corporate worship like we're doing here today? Do you schedule things around corporate worship or is this willing to get the punt? Now let me tell you why I'm trying to mention this and and also let me get a chance to explain why this is not just an attempt to make you feel guilty about missing church. Even though, as we're looking at this passage, even though the corporate gathering of worship on this side of the cross where we are today 
is different than in David's time. It, things looked very different, I'm aware. On this side of the cross, what we are doing today and what we do every Sunday is still an ordained way in which God administers the means of His grace. David knew this then. And even though God was with him, even though there were times when he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was in the wilderness, he desperately longed for the ordinary and the powerful ways that God would communicate His grace to David. And this is what it should mean to us. When we come here on Sunday mornings, we can ask for God's grace, for it to come in a way that it is not available otherwise. We can ask for that. And this really is not an argument for... Sabbath keeping or rule keeping in that sense or, or something that you have heard that you may be used to about the Sabbath day. This is to say that what we are offered here Sunday mornings, Grace Fellowship Church or wherever the, the church is, biblical church, what we are offered here is to share in the heritage of the Lord. That's what takes place here. And understand that people before us have died and were willing to die so that you and me would have the opportunity to share in what's offered here. And when you sacrifice that heritage, you forfeit. You forfeit what's offered through corporate worship. Please, this is not an angry, um, condemning thing. But do we see that David does not? Do we see that David does not feel like he is in trouble for not being at the tabernacle? Do we see that David does not feel condemned for not being at the tabernacle week in and week out? Or day in and day out? Do you understand that? He's not feeling condemned. But what is in David's heart is that he longs for God's presence that supernaturally and powerfully comes through the means of grace that take place as God's people gather for worship. And he's missing it. And he longs for it. And so do you see that he misses singing with the people of God? And do you see that when we sing, we invite God's presence in a different way than when we sing in the car? Do you understand that? We don't sing loud enough in here. Do you see that something different happens when we sing together in here that does not happen at your home when you sing? you see that we invite God's presence in a different way when we pray over communion here than when we bless the food at our home? When we study the Word and we pray together here, it's different. It's meant to be different than when we do that elsewhere. It's designed by God to be different here. 
David could pray. David could sing by himself in the wilderness. David could invite God to be with him and know that God was with him, but he longed for the heritage of the Lord with the people of God. This is not to discount all the other ways in which we can worship, in which we can study, in which we can fellowship, but it should highlight what we are doing now. It should highlight this day. It it should make us see this is not some pointless ritual. And the things that we do are not a part of some pointless ritual. These things have been ordained by Christ to invite His presence in. We join in in the heritage of the Lord. We join in with David, with the saints of old, with the people of God. When we come here and we plead for the grace of God in a special way. So what, closing here, what brings all of this together? How could David be patient for justice? How could he count on an offering to cover his sin? And what was so important about the presence of the Lord? He understood that he was living under God's reign that was leading to redemption, wherein perfect justice was coming. He knew it was coming. He knew a perfect offering was coming. He knew that he could offer an offering here and it would only represent and be a small shadow of what was going to come. He knew that the grace that was needed would be fulfilled. That He knew he was under that reign. We now, we have a clearer and a more fascinating picture Because what we have is something David didn't have. We have an eyewitness account, eyewitnesses that wrote about the Son of God coming to earth. He lets himself be condemned by being the perfect offering. Now throughout the history of the Bible, we see justice being carried out. We see it in different ways. Yet in God's mercy, sinners were always spared always spared, and it was because God was waiting on that perfect moment to pour out wrath and to execute perfect justice as he poured it out on his son. And so this is how David's living under this reign. He sees a Redeemer God that is going to fulfill his promises. He sees a Redeemer God that though he didn't know this, we're able to see now that he saw a Redeemer God that would one day crucify his son for David's sin and for our sin. And as Romans 3.26 tells us, he was both just and the justifier. And as we participate here together, we participate in this grace of Christ we participate in this reign of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your perfect holiness. We thank you for the opportunity to make a plea for your grace and that in your mercy and your kindness you extend that grace. Thank you for the special gathering that you've called us to that we do not have to be without. We give you praise and glory in the name of Christ. Amen.